0: isn't fair. Justice is blind and dysfunctional. This is who killed Teresa. July 19, 1975, building handyman Bill Terrell, responding to complaints of a foul odor coming from a 10th floor locked apartment at 460 East 63rd Street and York Avenue in New York City, discovered the bodies of Dr. Cyril Marcus and his twin brother, Dr. Stuart Marcus. As first reported in the New York Daily News, Cyril was lying face down on the bed in a pair of shorts. Stewart's body was found on the floor in another room near an identical matching bed, lying face up and completely naked. The handyman told police the place was disheveled with large amounts of cash scattered throughout the apartment. This later turned out to amount to approximately $22 though there were no signs of struggle. One of the armchairs was covered in human excrement. There were conflicting reports of both brothers living in the posh Upper East Side apartment, but the doorman said it was Cyril's place, and only he lived there. The twin brothers were in their mid-forties. The medical examiner stated that, very roughly, it seems like Stuart Had been dead for four days when he was found and Cyril had been dead for only two days. Their deaths were considered bizarre as there were no signs of violence. The medical examiner said that further tests would be done to determine whether they might have died from quote some drug or chemical reason. The medical examiner's office conducted over 30 chemical tests on the bodies of Stuart and Cyril Marcus, and still were not able to determine what killed the twin gynecologists. Despite reports that their apartment was littered with rubbish, including liquor and prescription drug bottles, by one report over 100 drug bottles, there were no traces of alcohol, barbiturates, narcotics, or depressants in their system. Dr. Cyril and Stuart Marcus were nationally known physicians affiliated with the New York hospital Cornell Medical Center. Today, part of the medical complex that occupies several city blocks at 68th and York Cornell Medical College, the Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. The twins bore the titles of clinical assistant professors of obstetrics and gynecology and were co-directors of Cornell Hospital's Infertility Clinic. They both published influential articles in some of the leading medical journals. Some pointed to stressors and changes in recent months. Dr. Stanley Birnbaum of New York Hospital reported to the New York Daily News that the doctors were, quote, very dedicated, quiet and conscientious But there seemed to have some emotional problems over the past year. A tenth-floor neighbor at their Sutton Terrace apartment put it more bluntly. They were pretty weird. The doorman at an east-side apartment where Cyril would often pick up his two daughters at his ex-wife's apartment commented, Two years ago he looked fine, but lately he looked awful. Run down. Skinny. Since last summer, I'd say he'd lost at least 20 pounds. He looked gaunt. Very ill. Staff at New York Hospital said that Stuart Marcus had always remained a bachelor. In the fall of 1975, Linda Wolfe wrote an article for New York Magazine called The Strange Death of the Twin Gynecologists. Wolfe was an essayist and is best known for her book, Wasted, the Preppy Murder, about the 1986 murder of 18-year-old Jennifer Levin, who was found strangled in Central Park adjacent to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Robert Chambers was quickly arrested. The two had once dated and had been seen together the prior evening at a bar known as Dorian's Red Hand near the museum at 84th Street. Wolfe had once been a patient of Stuart Marcus She had experienced firsthand the doctor's odd behavior. During one visit, Stuart Marcus began to, quote, shout and scream at Wolf until her husband intervened and the couple stormed out of the clinic. For years, both brothers had been taking massive doses of Nembutal, but as there were no doses of drugs in their system at the time of death, Medical experts ultimately concluded that the twins died from withdrawal after a desperate attempt to kick their prescription drug habit. Some questioned this ruling as there were no typical signs of withdrawal at the time of death, no bruising, tongue biting, or brain hemorrhaging. New tests were conducted and the determination was revised to conclude that Stewart could have died from withdrawal, but not his minutes younger brother, Cyril. How did Cyril die? Even stranger, Cyril had outlived his brother by several days and was observed leaving the apartment, only to ultimately return and die later alongside his brother. Why did Cyril leave the apartment? And then, why did he decide to return? I see the 50s apartment house. It's bleak in the 1970s sun. But I still love the 50s. uh, And I still love the old wood. I wanna keep my place in this old world. Uh, keep my place in the arcane knowledge and still of the 50s uh, and still love the old world. Alright, now we say bye bye, old world. Gonna help the new world. The twins grew up. In 1930s Binghamton, New York, then later Bayonne, New Jersey. Not identical twins, though they looked alike. The brothers were always together from childhood through their school years. Neither was athletic, no footballs for the Marcus brothers. Their physician father bought them a chemistry set. They enjoyed playing doctor. They didn't seem to need anyone but each other, a classmate remarked. The twins wore similar white shirts with ties and jackets. They were formal all the time, as if they couldn't bear to face the world without putting on some kind of a mask. Stewart's one-time fiancé offered, The twins were snobs. After medical school, when the Marcus Brothers began their medical residencies together, a fellow student remarked, They were schizoid. When they talked to you, and, and most of the time they didn't talk to anyone, just to one another, you got the distinct impression that their responses were artificial. That they didn't really have emotions that other people did, but were aping others' emotions, trying to imitate them. Former patients were similarly troubled. One woman who eventually gave birth to twins commented how Stuart, her obstetrician, greeted the impending news with contempt and disdain. It was as if giving birth to twins was something too special for the likes of me. Offered another woman, having them in attendance was horrible. One checked with his fingers to see how far was dilated. Then he called his brother and had him check too. Then they did it again. It was painful enough to have one person checking the dilation, excruciating to have two people doing it. And it was also, I should add, totally unnecessary. But they did it anyway. It was as if one couldn't bear to do something without sharing what he was doing with his brother. Only once did the twins separate when Stewart transferred briefly to the University Hospital at Stanford. Within a year, he was back in New York and started a private practice with Cyril. In the 60s, their medical practice prospered. They did research and published in many scientific journals. They co-authored what is considered a classic textbook, Advances in Obstetrics and Gynecology. It's not known at what point prescription drugs entered their lives. But by the 1970s they had become addicted to barbiturates and amphetamines, all the while delivering babies and performing medical procedures. Their behavior became arrogant and erratic. One day Cyril threw a tray of sterilized instruments at a patient. He would often call patients from restaurants like PJ Clark's and ramble on in stories such as the one about a woman he claimed to have treated for the after effects of having sex with a large dog. Their building handyman, Bill Terrell, believed that in 1972, Cyril suffered an overdose. Terrell was passing through the hallway when he heard a buzzing coming from inside Cyril's apartment. He knocked, then pounded on the door, but no one answered. Alarmed, Terrell immediately called Stuart, telling him, There's something not quite kosher at your brother's place. I think he needs your help. Terrell said that Stuart then put down the phone for approximately 90 seconds. Terrell said he had the feeling that Stuart was somehow consulting the airwaves, communing with his brother. Others have speculated he may have also been considering to cut ties with Cyril then and there, or merely taking the time to pull himself together, no doubt being in a drug-induced state of his own. After what seemed like an eternity, Terrell finally heard, You're right. He needs help. I'll be right over. Stewart and Terrell found Cyril lying fully clothed and unconscious in the foyer of his apartment. He was resuscitated, hospitalized, then quickly back at his practice seeing patients. Though it has been suggested that Cyril suffered a stroke during this overdose that may have caused brain damage. By 1974, their once-crowded waiting room had emptied. The office grew dirty. The rent went unpaid. The brothers' speech slurred. The medical profession has always been slow to deal with problems amongst its own for fear of a lawsuit. But by 1975, the chairman of obstetrics and gynecology at New York Hospital, Dr. Fritz Fuchs, gave the Marcus brothers an ultimatum. Get treatment or resign. The twins opted to kick their drug habit alone without assistance. They isolated in Cyril's apartment, stocked with TV dinners and anti-convulsive medication. At some point, one of them went to the drugstore to pick up a barbiturate prescription. Sometime between July 10th and July 14th, Stuart overdosed on nebutol and died. And this is where things get even weirder. After Stuart's death, the doorman of the apartment had an encounter with Cyril. The younger twin appeared to be trying to escape, making his way out of the building. The doorman noticed Cyril's disorientation and frailty and offered to help Cyril curtly brushed him aside with a, I can manage on my own. But once out in the street, he quickly retreated back into the apartment. Back with Stuart, Cyril left a kind of suicide note. He placed a copy of the Iris Murdoch novel, A Fairly Honorable Defeat, face down in the middle of one of the rooms. The book is about two brothers and a mischievous and satanic figure named Julius, who makes a bet he can break up a relationship between a homosexual couple. Other than medical works, it was the only book found in the apartment. After placing the book, Cyril appears to have simply lied down and waited to die. In the fall of 1987, I arrived in New York City. I wanted to study acting and I got accepted to the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater. Some friends of mine, Greg and Kenton, from my University of Toronto days, were now doing graduate work at Sloan Kettering uh, and they offered up their couch in student housing apartment located at 70th and York and I think I arrived by train via Grand Central Station and then I took a cab to the Upper East Side Um, Manhattan in 1987 was still not so different from uh, New York in the 70s Um, the deuce 42nd street was not yet gentrified um you know there were no toys r us with ferris wheels and stuff like that there were peep shows was uh at that time unsafe to walk through Central Park at night and I remember there must have been a garbage strike because there were mountains of debris piled along the curbs uh, <laughs> not unlike Montreal at any time really um, uh, and, uh, and at night I uh, If you came home late at night, the rats would would literally follow you for several blocks. Um, They would even turn corners and follow you, (laughs) which struck me as bizarre. Coming from Toronto, uh, I, I knew crime, but I did not know firsthand American type crime. Everyone remembered the, the Alison Peratt murder. She's the, 11 uh, year old girl who had been lured to varsity stadium, uh, the previous summer, 1986, and her remains were found two days later in the woods near Etobicoke. Everyone, everyone remembered that, uh, Greg and Kenton, my U of T friends uh, and I, we'd lived in in a dorm behind Varsity Stadium, so we all remember that. But we had never experienced anything like the Preppy murder, Um, and Robert Chambers' legal process was playing out in the New York courts in the fall of 1987. It it would have been hard to ignore the 24-hour updates in the New York Post, the Daily News. Uh, What I remember is Chambers was roughly our age, and um, he dressed nice, you know, know, hence the preppy murder. Um, He did not appear like the sort of sex pervert, the traditional image of a sex pervert we'd all been told all our lives to, to watch out for. And I know at some point, we all found ourselves at Dorian's red Hand, the 84th Street bar where Chambers and Jennifer Levin were last seen together before Chambers strangled her. And uh, you, you know, just uh, this is the kind of this is the kind of sightseeing travelogue that grad students do, right? And we would have we would have had a beer just to take in the atmosphere. Um, we did not then venture two or three blocks to the crime scene. That is something I did on my own. Um, it was a grassy area in the, like the south shadow of the Met today it's near a the Group of Bears sculpture. That sculpture was built in the 90s. Um, and Chambers would later try to explain that it was just some kind of misunderstanding that that Jennifer Levin enjoyed rough sex. Uh, Chambers' skin was found under Jennifer Levin's fingernails where she had gouged him, attempting to stop him from strangling the life out of her. Um And I even years, you know, years later, maybe maybe almost a decade, two decades later, um, I recall being with my family at the mat, you know, my my then wife and kids, and there's a photo of us, you know, on the steps of the mat um, having a hot dog, you know, after spending two hours looking at art or something. And, you know, I'm not in the photo, obviously, I'm taking the photo, but I remember like slowly kind of gravitating, <laughs> gravitating to the south area of, you know, for off the stairs, gravitating to the Levin site to sort of like, you know, watching my family, but out of my left left eye, I also have one eye, right? on this this glade of trees where this horrible event happened in 1986. I did not often come that far west to the eastern edge of Central Park. My morning commute each day in 1987 was a was a 16 block straight shot down either York or First Avenue and uh, recently I googled that walk to school. and there's little i recognized uh you know diners have been replaced with starbucks um everything appeared like really big and really high someone remarked that the you know the old the, the coffee cup you used to get had like this greek design on it and that's all gone now that's all been replaced with a starbucks co- cup with you with your name scribbled on it in a highlighter or something on that walk i remember uh, like if if i took first avenue just before the like the feeling groovy bridge um there there was like a run of uh, uh, there was a chippendales uh, a tgif fridays and then finally some comedy club like the you know the comedy works or comedy store you know <laughs> the laugh riot hey coming have a good time and um you know early in the morning there was always a lot of puke uh from the previous evening and there's there's like some poor slob at 6 30 hosing the place down you know the front walk that's what i that's what i remember and then you'd you'd cross under the 59th street bridge there's like a little parquet to the left um where they shot that scene from manhattan and then a few blocks later at 54th that's where the, the, the Neighborhood Playhouse was located. And uh, um, the, the, the Neighborhood Playhouse and its acting founder, Sandy Meisner, Sanford Meisner, he's most famous for uh, teaching uh, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, you know, first year in any of those programs is kind of like the military where they strip you down and then they slowly build you back up. Um, and I remember Full Metal Jacket was coming out then and my teacher was a lot like the gunnery sergeant in that film. His name was Robert Modica. He's this like chain smoking former marine, self proclaimed former Jesuit. Uh, he looked a lot like the actor um, Robert Robert Loggia. And, and Modica he, like he yelled a lot. He there's uh, a lot of fist slamming of tables. Uh, he'd give like these speeches all the time about you know our fallen boys at Anzio. Iwo Jima, Saipan, Guadalcanal. Um, <laughs> our boys, Oh, brave boys. Um, and it's like only years later I realized he was like these sermons, or these modified versions of like the the William Demarest Bar speech from Preston Sturgis' Hail the Conquering Hero. Right. Uh, he's a great guy, but <laughs> um, um. Uh, uh you know at that at that time everyone wanted to study uh you know at one of these one of these method school schools which in the neighborhood playhouse was one of them sandy's method um and one day i came in the front door for class you know in the playhouse at this dimly lit lobby right with greasy eight by ten photographs of alumni in it you know check off from star trek i forget who else was in there um anyway the whole place was dimly lit uh it was like someone went around like removing every second light bulb or something in order to save on the electric bill so there in the lobby is joan rivers right and her teenage daughter melissa uh looking like reagan from the the exorcist Uh, and I don't know if, if Melissa Rivers wasn't good enough or she she, uh, she lost interest, but I never saw her again. I think she became a talk show host. Um, I would learn later, of course, that uh, you know, all these people lived in this midtown area in this neighborhood. Rivers was near 54th and first. Uh, her friend, the uh, celebrity hairstylist Ken Batel lived a block up on 55th. His studio Kenneth's was located further down 54th at Madison and Battelle was responsible for reviving Marilyn Monroe's look in the late 50s um, her hair was kind of falling apart he you know Marilyn from some like it hot is kind of Battelle's creation so so of course Marilyn lived within close range at 57th and first uh, then her friend Monty Clift um was only a few blocks away from that at 61st and and third and then of course further up the street it you know if you're rounding back at east 76 was the clinic of max Jacobson, the uh the original dr feelgood Jacobson supplying everyone from monroe to jfk with methamphetamines. uh He's kind of the de facto pill consultant for the film adaptation of Jacqueline Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. Uh, Dolls being um, pills. Uh, Co-starring the up and coming Sharon Tate. Jacobson got busted in 72 for peddling speed. And uh, it was the opioid crisis of its time, right? An era where highly lethal prescription drugs, administered at the hands of your doctor was de rigueur, and uh, certainly self-medicating doctors was, was the norm. Most of those people and places have vanished, and I, I, but I was f- surprised to find that one had survived. The, the Madison restaurant in the, in the late 80s it was known as the Madison food shop. It's still located at the northwest corner of 53rd and 1st oh my stars um many a breakfast shared here before class Uh, i once sat across a booth occupied by bill murray and sydney pollock the tootsie director and occasional actor who was a decade later uh, going to appear in kubrick's eyes wide shut and if you walked a few blocks south toward the united nations there was one of the last horn and Hardart automats in the city um, where you could still drop in some change you know in a slot and get like an egg sandwich or a piece of pie i heard that was eventually turned in with burger king it's uh, you know it's all gone one one last thing and then i promise we'll continue i promise there's a reason i told you all that you know under the 59th bridge or 59th street bridge i remember this they were going up the hill there just the on the north side of the, the bridge were these businesses almost like in caves or something right and uh there was there was one guy there who had like it was like an army surplus store but it had all kinds of treasures right it's, it's like uh, like in the simpsons when homer tries to buy the, the doll to right we sell foreign objects <laughs> it was that like that kind of place um I remember going in there and, and there was like like under the shelving was this old dirty box and I pulled it out and it was filled with like original GI Joe paraphernalia and I knew despite being 28 years old <laughs> and um, too old for dolls I knew that this was a gold mine right and uh, I was like this guy so I just you know I just casually toss you know hey hey pops hey pops how much for the junk right he's like 10 bucks said, I'll give you five and I hear it, <laughs> he has a sawbuck or so I paid nothing for that right I was a real wiseacre at that time you know I was probably studying for some play by Odets or Soroyan, right a bus stop or picnic hey Hey Pops. <laughs> How much for the junk? Um and, and so yeah, I got all this I got all this crap for a song. It's probably worth hundreds of dollars today. Like a uh, uh, G.I. Joe hand grenade the size of your fingernail. 75 bucks on eBay <laughs> Oh I recently uh, talked to my friend, Kenton, who i had lived with at that time, because I couldn't remember much about the area we, where we lived at 70th and, and York. And he said, we liked a bar across the street called Nimrods. Uh, it was one of those places, like um, in the basement of a brownstone. You'd walk down the steps into this urban cave and the owner was this guy named wolfgang And you know as he's telling me this i'm remembering it uh he was he was one of the last holdouts uh, to resist putting televisions above the bar Wolf, wolfgang wanted to he, he wanted to talk to everybody he didn't want people watching television so you'd you'd sit there and you'd do shots of uh jägermeister which was a novelty at the time and mm. uh, there was this obligatory you know new york NYC Pizza Place, uh, Kenton, Kenton said it was run by this old guy who threw dough in the air in the classic way, who was seriously drunk all the time and he had burn marks from the oven on his arms. So it was at this point I asked Kenton about the Marcus Brothers. He had worked at New York Hospital. Possibly occupying the same lab space as the twin doctors, Stuart and Cyril, had he ever heard any stories. And Kenton responded, no personal stories. I remember being absolutely haunted by that film and reading some bio stories, probably in New York Magazine, about them when the film came out. The film, of course, is Dead Ringers, David Cronenberg's psychological horror thriller about the twin gynecologists, played by Jeremy Irons and in the movie called Beverly and Elliot Mantle. Cronenberg was influenced by Linda Wolf's New York Magazine article. as well as a fictionalized account in the novel Twins. Cronenberg earned some flack for the tabloid-esque title, but Dead Ringers is actually the name of a 1976 Esquire piece written about the Marcus Brothers by Ron Rosenbaum and Susan Edmondson. It's essentially an expanded retelling of the Wolf 1974 article. For the most part, Cronenberg sticks to Wolfe's script. We see the young Mantle boys given a chemistry set and playing doctor with a neighborhood girl. Uh, Toronto's modest annex neighborhood kind of stands in for the New Jersey suburbs. The deterioration of their practice is portrayed as we watch Irons. He slowly unravels. It's, it's all pretty much by the book until it isn't and things take the inevitable Cronenberg turn. Beverly enlists a downtown artist to create some new surgical instruments that come out looking like medieval weapons of torture. He then attempts to perform an operation on a woman using the instruments. The scene ends with him being unable to breathe and lunging for the patient's gas respirator. In reality, it was Cyril Marcus who once launched himself across the operating table, grasping for a patient's anesthetic mask. Cyril also once attempted to perform a circumcision using the dull handle of his surgical instrument. Fans of Cronenberg would instantly recognize the reference to his previous film, The Fly, in this scene when, when Ronnie Gina Davis has the nightmare of giving birth to the grotesque insect pupa. The gynecologist conducting the procedure is played by David Cronenberg. And by the time we move to dead ringers, Irons is covered head to toe in this red death robe and surgical mask with only his glasses showing. So he's now like a dead ringer for Cronenberg. I had seen the world premiere of Dead Ringers at the Toronto Film Festival, the Festival of Festivals, in the fall of 1988, but I had not made the connection nor had any way of knowing at that time that the real gynecologist twins had lived down the street from me on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I had probably Walked past Cyril's apartment uh, at 63rd in New York on uh, an almost daily basis for close to a year. Had I arrived a decade-ish earlier, I, I might have even mingled with them in a drugstore, or you know, seen them grabbing a slice at uh, at Burnt Arm Guys, famous, right? <laughs> hey. Cyril Marcus. He's having a slice. Dan Ringers rather closely tracks the the ending of Dr. Stewart and Cyril Marcus. Beverly slash Cyril attempts to leave the now deceased Elliot slash Stewart's place. He goes outside. He calls his ex-lover Claire, played by Genevieve Boujo. She's a shared love interest of the twins in the films. It's It's actually one of the least convincing elements of the film, and they're Believe me, there are several. <laughs> um, but um, so he um, he tries to call her from a payphone, and uh, Claire answers, and she asks, "Who is this?" Beverly hangs up the phone. He retreats indoors, and he waits to die in his twin brother's arms. Now, even in life, as in art, things things got mixed up. The Dad Ringer's Esquire piece, written two years after the twins' discovery, reported that for months the media got it wrong in reporting that Cyril was found on the bed and it was Stuart on the floor. It was, in fact, (laughs) the other way around, which, you know, of course leads one to wonder, so which twin, in fact, died first? and precisely which brother ventured out into the world Um, you know at this point I don't know born born minutes apart I don't know that it even matters Um, they they were known to frequently impersonate each other Uh, some have even speculated that the Marcus brothers weren't even twins but they promoted themselves as such to give an air of, of uh, mystery, wonder, uniqueness. The Esquire article suggests an even more macabre folia de deux, um, folie un, folie à uh, played out in the summer of 1975. Rosenbaum writes, uh, The remnants of their last days together suggest that in some respects the twins lived out a kind of nightmarish children's party. There were dozens of bottles of sweet soda pop all over the place. Wild cherry, strawberry, vanilla cream, rooty root beer, Coca-Cola. There were cookies, cakes, and ice cream too. And they never had to clean up. Essay on the Marcus Brothers can be found in her collection of stories, The Professor and the Prostitute and Other True Tales of Murder and Madness. The, the lead-off piece in that book concerns the 1983 bludgeoning murder of a Boston sex trade worker Robin Benedict at the hands of her John, former Tufts University professor William Douglas. It's another tale of obsession and identity a locus of writing. Wolf excels at? Uh, Douglas was introduced to Benedict at a bar in Boston's red light district known as the Combat Zone and from that point it seemed inevitable that his destiny would be to eventually kill her. Wolf has an acute understanding of this. this element of social behavior. So does uh, so does David Cronenberg. Whether it's Max Wren in Videodrome or Johnny in The Dead Zone, uh, Seth Brundle, the Mantle Brothers, inevitably it is the fate of every Cronenberg hero to hole up somewhere and wait for death or rebirth. And uh, this is how Wolf concludes her New York magazine piece on Stuart and Cyril Marcus. Many people I spoke with after the twins died felt that there was something mystical about Cyril's behavior and suggested that he had been in effect almost drawn against his will to share his brother's fate. It made me realize that some primitive terror of twins still lurks in contemporary man, We have come eons away from the kinds of superstitions that drove Aborigines of Australia to murder one or even both of a twin set at birth. That prompted some West African tribes to kill not just twin infants, but the woman who had given birth to them. But some of us, perhaps the Marcus brothers themselves, nevertheless attribute to twins superhuman sensitivities, like extrasensory perception or the ability to communicate without words and when these doubles born on the same day die at the same time their fate arouses in us an almost primordial anxiety the simultaneous or nearly simultaneous death of twins happens rarely but when it does, it seems like some mysterious arithmetical proposition far beyond the ordinary computation involved in life and death. And it so frightens and unnerves us that we seek extra rational explanations. But mysticism is unnecessary in the case of the Marcus brothers. The explanation for their nearly simultaneous death lies in the extraordinary attachment they felt towards one another and the extraordinary disregard they felt for the world of singletons. By way of a conclusion, uh, it took a lot of work for me to remember 1987 New York. Um, I know at that time we were all reading like Jay McInery and Tamma Janowitz, uh, these new fresh literary things. Um, I had to pomp my friend Kenton to get my noggin going, um, but I found some journals I'd kept from my New York years. Um, a lot, and a lot of it is is you know the journals of somebody going through conservatory acting training. You know, and my 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 impressions of Brando and and Duval or anything uh, Sandy Meisner taught us about the method. It's that's not going to light a, a candle. But what I, what I did keep that. Is, is interesting is the names of people and places and specific dates and addresses. That stuff, I suspected this was true and I was right. I, that stuff I cataloged meticulously. Um, so the only reason I remember the Madison Food Shop is because I wrote it down and, and then was kind of shocked to find that it was thriving at 53rd and 1st there's uh, an entry that that reads uh, from April 1988 gallery at 57th and 5th Avenue for Vince's showing tonight 6 pm 8 p.m this is a reference to the American painter Vincent desiderio uh, at that time Vince was was struggling to find his way in the New York art world he he no longer is, and it was my friend Greg, Greg, who, who lived with Kenton and I, uh, who knew knew Vince best at that time, and so we'd we'd show up at his openings to show to show support. Once, the three of us served as artist models for one of his paintings, and I remember this. He brought us up to the roof of an East Side apartment. It was probably a. Must have been. It must have been the building we were at at 70th New York. And I remember it was winter, it was cold, and he had us pose in the snow while he sketched. And one of us served as a dead body lying in the snow. And the other two were sort of these passive, nonchalant observers over the body. I think I was the dead body. This is who killed Teresa. If you're a devotee to uh, the, the oral stories of uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, and you've ever heard the, um, his, his moth podcast about how he, he broke up a wedding, Greg in this story is the Craig in that story it's the same it's the same it's the same guy um, should you should you venture um, some things uh, just in <laughs> retrospect you know I doubt I would have ran into the Marcus brothers in a pizza parlor they didn't strike me the type that ate much if they ate at all They're like vampires right um, i i probably would have been more prone to run into them in in a like a liquor store although i didn't have much money for booths you know it was a rare occasion that you you'd buy a bottle and it 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 usually would last half a year or something like that for special occasions we were poor and it always but it always fascinated me about a new york liquor store you know on the corner there and you could go in you could find anything uh it's quite different from the experience of if anyone knows at that time um, buying liquor in, in in Ontario at the LCBO which I wouldn't I wouldn't have known the Quebec Montreal experience I was too young that I became I, I, I came of age in Toronto, right? And if anyone knows, right, you have to go to the LCBO <laughs> to buy liquor at, in that in that time in, in Ontario. Um, it's kinda of like going to consumers distributing, right? You'd fill out you'd you'd look in the catalog or and you'd fill out a little chit of paper and you'd hand it to the guy and there'd be somebody in a back room and the booze would come out like on a, a rolling conveyor like they used to have for the groceries at Steinberg's or something. You know, usually a case of beer, but I don't know. I think I think booze as well. I was thinking about that. It's like consumers distributing. Does anyone remember cons- consumers distributing? Uh, probably not. Um, I wanna I, I, I wanna pitch again that I am I am writing on Substack. Substack is like Medium or anything like that. It's a forum. That's a big truck. Uh, it's a forum for um, for writing. It's just an easier way. To 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 convey ideas, um, so I'm asking you to subscribe to Sub Substack, um, and if you go to my website TeresaLore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E dot com, to your right, there's a little menu that says Stuff, and under that it says Subscribe to Newsletter, uh, and you'll get all kinds of things in in there, um, uh, stuff that I will not talk about on the the podcast or at a minimum try not to duplicate message it's just a way of me to keep working on on writing and things like that not only newsletters stories and things like that i'll certainly post the text to this po- uh, podcast on um on substack because it's uh it's pithy and i need look i need your help i need a hundred subscribers and if you just subscribe or share it to somebody who you think might want to read it, I'd, I I would greatly appreciate you you doing that um, because I do, I said it before I don't like visually um, how the the written text appears on my website. Speaking of the website, yes, it's being updated and I love the direction it's going in. So um, that'll that'll happen quickly. It's um, just it's just going to look cleaner and more efficient and you'll be able to find things uh, 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 more quickly i'll say that um yeah just a quick word as we're going out about the music for today's podcast uh so the focus is 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 jonathan richmond's band the, the modern lovers uh right um who i never in my uh, i'm not that cool i never really paid attention to them until recently uh uh, i had seen jonathan richmond years ago and was not terribly impressed with him solo he's kind of doing this man child act that really kind of uh, annoyed and continues to annoy me um whenever actors act like that or performers act like that uh the, the, the guy from Guardians of the Galaxy comes to mind just drives me nuts it, you know, here I am being a big baby uh, anyway that's kinda of how Jonathan Richman struck me but his creation of the band the proto-punk band The Modern Lovers is really interesting to me because uh, because who was in that band which I never knew you probably know so on keyboards was was Jerry Harrison who went on to The Talking Heads uh, and on drums was David Robinson. Is that his name? Who went on to become the the, the drummer for the Cars? Now, uh, a lot of people are critical of David Robinson <laughs> drumming in the Cars. I, I'm not. I kind of like the way he played. I particularly like the play the way he plays with the Modern Lovers. That I like. So that's that's kind of where music's going t- today. Uh, We opened with Blondie and Debbie Harry. Of course, um, the only tie there is that Debbie Harry co-stars in David Cronenberg's Videodrome. So that's why we did that. Um, Let's go out like that. Why why say more? Uh, Cyril and Stuart Marcus, if you ever wondered about the genesis of that story there you, you got it that's what we had today uh, this has been Who Killed Teresa I'm your host with the most not a ghost John Allure have yourselves a great great day Everything is very-